Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Every culture has its own language, certain words and phrases that they use to be able to identify and communicate with one another. Every culture has its own language. So there's English, there's Spanish, there's Portuguese, there's French, Italian, American Sign Language. Every culture has its own language to help you identify a person. So, you know, we're in Texas and we speak English, kind of. Uh, we speak a different kind of English. We speak redneck. So we say things like y'all or fixin' to. I remember when I lived up in New York, when I lived up in New York, I, people thought my accents and the dialect and words I used were insane. Cause I'd be like, hey, y'all fixin' to go to church. And they're like, what does that even mean? Like, we're going to go. Like, that's exactly what I'm saying. We're, we're fixing to. So you guys, you know what I mean. Every culture has its own language. The same is true for Christianity. Christians, they have their own language. We affectionately know it as Christianese. Do you guys know what Christianese is? Like, you may be a guest or a visitor. It could be your first time coming to church, and you walk in, and you're like, it's familiar, but it's different. Because it seems sometimes like Christians, they speak a totally different language, and it can be a little confusing because they say things, but I don't think they really consider what it is that they're saying. So maybe you're unfamiliar with Christianese. Let me give you a couple of Christianese terms. One of them is this. Um, we're going we're gonna to have a love offering. Let's say it's your first time to ever go to church, and that's what the preacher says. Today, we're going to have a love offering. If it's your first time, you're like, whoa, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't know what a love offering is, but mm-mm, no siree. Actually, all that means is, is that we have a guest preacher, and we can't afford to pay him, so we're going to pass the plates, and then you're going to give him a love offering. Or maybe you hear about the 1040 window. You're like, what's that? Is that the time I hope Pastor Byron finishes his sermon? It starts at 9. He better get us out before the 1040 window so we could beat the Baptist to Cheddar's. No, actually, all the 1040 window means is this. It's where the latitude and longitude of the most unreached people groups in the world. So when we send missionaries, we send them oftentimes to the 1040 window. How about if someone asks to see your fruits? You're like, is that a love offering? No, that's totally different. That's totally different. All it means is, is that we want to see your good works. A Christian should be known by their fruit, and so we will know you by your good works. How about this one? My personal favorite growing up Pentecostal plead the blood, right? If you come to church and somebody's like, we're going to plead the blood over you, you're like, whoa, I saw this in a Stephen King movie. No, thank you. I'm out of here. They're going to plead the blood. All that means is this, is that we want to pray for you in the authority and in the name of Jesus. There's all sorts of words that Christians use And I don't think that they really comprehend and understand the meaning of those words. But there is one word that I think we throw out a lot, but we don't really consider what it means. And it's this word right here, the word glory. What does the word glory mean? If I were to ask you, how would you define glory, what would you say? The word glory is a mega theme found throughout all of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is a revelation, a picture of the glory of God. The word glory appears in the King James Version some 600 times. 
It means the weightiness, the worthiness, the importance, the preeminence, the prominence, the illuminescence, the majesty, the splendor, the beauty, the power of God. That's what the word glory means. To give you a simple definition, here's how we would define glory. Who God is and what God does. If you want to know the glory of God, here's what it means. Who God is and what God does. With that being said, if you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at a story known as the transfiguration. This is a picture of Jesus' glory. Jesus being the second member of the Trinity coming into human history, and he walks the pages of Scripture. He walks across the, the life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, all of that is a picture of Jesus's glory. And as we get ready to dive into this, we find ourselves in the very middle of the gospel of Mark. Mark is 16 chapters. Today we start chapter nine. That is the very center. And this is the centerpiece of the gospel of Mark. This is the moment that everything begins to change in Jesus's life and ministry. If you've been hanging out with us here at Redemption, you know we love to study books of the Bible. We've been in the gospel of Mark for uh, nine chapters now. It's been 35 sermons. We are halfway through and we're only in chapter nine. And the whole reason that we're doing this series is because we want you to know who Jesus is and what Jesus does. We want you to know his glory. So the first eight chapters in the gospel of Mark is all about who Jesus is. Mark is divided into two sections. The first eight chapters is all about the identity of Jesus. So Jesus comes, preaching, teaching, healing. Mark chapter one says he's revealing the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus does is to show us who he is. And over and over again in Mark's gospel, people just keep asking this question. Who is Jesus? How does this man get the authority to teach like that? Who is this man that even the demons obey him? Who is this man that even creation obeys him? Who does Jesus think he is? Forgiving sins. And the big culmination of all of the first eight chapters happened last week whenever Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And then Peter famously confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ. The first eight chapters all about who Jesus is. The last eight chapters is all about why Jesus came, what Jesus plans to do, what Jesus accomplishes through a substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection in our place for our sins, forgiving us and giving us grace, hope, mercy, and redemption, salvation, reconciled relationship with the Father, both now and forever. Who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and then right here in the middle, we see a story all about Jesus' is glory. And so we're going to dive in and we're going to look at this fascinating account of Jesus's glory. This really is a crazy story. It's probably one of the most theological and dense sections of scripture, maybe one of the most difficult passages that I've ever had to study and prepare and to preach. And so I'm going to give it my best shot to be able to explain the infinite God with finite words. We're going to be able to see his glory. And this is important for us. Because as a church, we don't want to be a church that just says the word glory. 
We want to be a church that sees him in all of his glory. We don't want to be a church that just sings songs about his glory. A.W. Tozer, he says this famous quote, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. We don't want to be a church that just sings about his glory. We want to be the type of church that experiences it, that witnesses it, that knows it. We want to be the church that sees Jesus in all of his glory because when you see him for who he is and what he does, everything in your life begins to change. So what we're going to do is a little bit different today. Normally, I would read the whole section and we'd pull out, you know, three to five points. But today what I want to do is I want to, I want to take this story and I want to walk through it verse by verse, line by line, make a couple of observations. The transfiguration is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, big fancy college word. You're going to hear a lot of those today. So I'm going to actually harmonize all three accounts so we can get a better picture and we can see more clearly Jesus and all of his glory. I'm going to read it all. We're going to work our way through, and then I'm going to close with five points of application that I hope you can take away and begin to put in practice in your life so that way you can see Jesus in all of his glory. Starting in verse one, and he, that's Jesus, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with its power. So if you remember last week, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He draws a big crowd to him. He teaches over the cost of discipleship and that if you deny him, he will deny you. If you're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. When the son of man comes with the glory of his father and with the holy angels, then he turns around and he tells his disciples that surely some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming with its Power. That word power can also be translated into glory. Jesus is telling them that you're about to see something amazing. You're about to see something incredible. You're about to see something that is going to change your life forever. You're going to see me in all of my glory. Then Jesus continues, verse two, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. These are the three disciples that are closest to Jesus. In Jesus' ministry, we've seen that there's crowds of thousands. We've seen groups of 72. Jesus personally called and chose 12, and within that 12, there's three, Peter, James, and John. These are the inner workings of Jesus' ministry. For two and a half years, they've been serving alongside of him. They've been watching him preach and tell parables and cast out demons. They've witnessed the miracles and the signs and wonders that Jesus does. And within that group of 12, there's three that get to witness a personal and powerful encounter. That's Peter, James, and John. You wonder, where are the other nine disciples at? We'll meet them next week because, well, they're doing ministry down at the bottom of the mountain. But Jesus brings up with them Peter, the leader of the disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, which is a pretty rad nickname if you ask me. And then and there's John the beloved, the one that he loves the most. And Jesus gets away from everything. The crowd, he gets away from the distractions. He gets away from the busyness and the exhaustion of doing ministry for two and a half years. And guess what him and his disciples do? They climb a mountain so they could get alone and they can pray. Jesus takes his disciples and he begins to pray. Could you imagine being a disciple watching Jesus pray, listening to him commune with the Father? Could you imagine just being there with Jesus as he prays? You say, well, Byron, I don't see the word prayer in this text. Well, 
Luke actually tells us in Luke 9, 28, that they were praying. It says, and after saying these things, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up to the mountain and they prayed. I think that would be incredible to be able to see and to watch and to witness Jesus down on his knees, alone in the middle of the night, praying. Well, what do you think is going to happen after Jesus prays? He says, you'll see my power. He gets alone and he prays. And then here's what we see happens next. Verse three, and his clothes, that's Jesus' clothes. And his clothes, it says here, was changed. That's, they became radiant. They became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. You say, what does that mean? The answer is, I don't know. I don't even know what that would look like. As Jesus is praying, all of a sudden he's transfigured. The Greek word there is metamorpho, or to be changed. It means literally that his body was changed. He was the same, but he was different. His clothes began to radiate. The, the glory that was on the inside of Jesus began to shine through on the outside. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know. But I do know this. Is this is a picture of the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus is eternally God, Alpha, Omega. There is no beginning and there is no end to Jesus. He is the creator, author, and sustainer of all things in eternity past. He's the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, operating together in unity, in, unity, in power, in majesty, and in glory. And then Jesus... Philippians tells us he humbly enters into creation. He takes on the form of a servant. He becomes like us in every single way, that he would weep as we weep, that he rejoices as we rejoice, that he suffers as we suffer, that he smiles and laughs just the same way we smile and laugh, and he was like us in every single way, minus one, that Jesus was without sin. He was fully man, and he was also fully God, and here we see Jesus' humanity and his divinity coalesce and one single moment. This is a picture of heaven meeting earth. This is a picture of the supernatural meeting the natural. This is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ and the future glory that Christ will have whenever we're with him in eternity. And here in just one moment, the entire expanse of his identity and his divinity and all of the universe and eternity, it meets on the side of a mountain. This is wild. <laughs> This is fascinating what the disciples get to see. They catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory, that his humanity in this moment is being peeled back and his divinity is being revealed to the disciples. And he begins to shine. He begins to radiate. He begins to show them his glory. Well, well what does that look like? Luke tells us this. And after he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew adds this, Matthew 17, 2, and he was transfigured before them. He was changed before them, and his face shone like the sun. You say, Byron, can you explain that? No, I, I can't. I can't even begin to imagine an infinite God with my finite understanding. But there is a story as you look forward into your Bible in the book of Revelation when John, he gets caught up in a vision on the Lord's day as he's praying and he's worshiping. He's been exiled to an island known as Patmos because he kept planting churches and wouldn't shut up telling people about Jesus. They were like, we're going to kill you. He said, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. They boiled him alive in oil and it still didn't kill him. So they're like, this guy's like the Terminator for Jesus. Let's just get rid of him, put him on an island. And then he's on an island and then God shows up and he writes a book 
book of the Bible. Like that's, that's discipleship right there. And so John, he's down on his knees. He gets caught up on the Lord's day and he has a vision of Jesus. He sees what Jesus is going to look like in eternity future. He sees what the resurrected, glorified Jesus looks like on the great day when we're with him. And here's what he says. In Revelation chapter 1, the hairs of his head were white like wool. They were white like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then he goes on and he adds this in Revelation 1.16 that there was a sword in his mouth and he held seven stars in his hands and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. You say, Byron, can you explain that? No, I can't. But you know what? One day I'm going to see it, and it's going to be amazing. You know, you and me, we kind of have this picture of Jesus like he was just this humble Galilean peasant, and he just wandered around with dirt on his sandals, wearing a Mr. Rogers sweater, sitting under a tree, hanging out with sheep and lamb and little kids, and there's sick people everywhere, and he was just this humble Galilean peasant. And you know what? The first time Jesus came, that's exactly who he was that he would love and help and serve and bless and heal as many people as he could. But then we have this understanding and we picture Jesus just hanging on a cross. But I want you to know that that's not the portrait of Jesus that we see in the book of Revelation. That Jesus is not just some humble Galilean peasant. He is an exalted king. That Jesus is not just on the cross. That Jesus comes down from the cross, is buried in the grave, taking upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, anything that hinders us and holds us back. It is underneath his feet. And as he resurrects, he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he belongs and he is radiating in the fullness of glory. There is no dark in him because he is shining like the sun for all of eternity. There is fire in his eyes, a sword in his hand, and tattooed down his legs that says, King of kings, Lord of lords. This is the picture of Jesus that we see where he's at today. You say, well, what does Jesus look like? He looks the same, but he's different. He's been transfigured. That's what Jesus looks like today. And one day, you're going to be with him and you're going to see him in all of that Glory. Well, that's incredible. You think that would be where the story ends, but it's actually going to get better. You say, how can it get better than that? Just wait. Our friends are going to show up. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Moses is the most prolific figure of the Old Testament. God's people, they were in slavery and bondage and Egypt, and there was a wicked ruler named Pharaoh, and they were crying out day and night. The Lord heard their cries. He raised up a man named Moses to be able to set the people free. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. So God sends plagues and signs and wonders, and then Moses, he relents, and he lets the people go. Moses leads them through the Red Sea. Moses leads them through the wilderness. He goes up on top of a mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses is the great leader, prolific figure and founder of all of the Old Testament. And there we see that Moses is with Jesus. And then 
Elijah shows up. You say, well, who's Elijah? He's the great prophet of the Old Testament. I mean, this is the guy who never died, that he was caught up in glory. A flaming chariot came and picked him up and brought him straight up to heaven, that the entire ministry of Elijah, he was preaching and prophesying. He was calling the people of Israel away from their idolatry into a place of repentance. He did battle with the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven. He stood for holiness. He stood for godliness and he just kept calling people back into a relationship with God through repentance. He's the prolific figure of what is known as the prophets. And here we see Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, sitting down and they're talking with Jesus. I mean, this is like a Star Trek episode if you think about it. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I mean, all of a sudden, Jesus is like atomic Jesus, light bulb Jesus. He just begins to shine like the sun on top of a mountain, and then beam me down, Moses and Elijah. And then they just start talking, and they're right there on the mountain. Could you imagine what this would be like? Could you imagine what it must be for you in this moment to witness Elijah and Moses and Jesus having this crazy theological conversation that takes place? I mean, if you don't read the Bible and think, okay, that's weird, then you're not reading the Bible. I mean, there's some things in the Bible, you read it, and you're like, how does that even make sense? But you know what? This goes to show just how important the Bible is to our lives, just how significant the Bible is for our lives, that this word is God's word. This word is true. This word is trustworthy. This word tells us exactly who God is and what God does. That's his glory, that through the scriptures, God has perfectly revealed his glory to us in the written word of God. You say, well, how does that connect with this? Moses is the law. Elijah is the prophets. Add those two together. That is the word of God. In the Old Testament, there's 39 books of the Bible. And in those 39 books, you can really divide it into two things, the law and the prophets. And here we see on the mountain, the law and the prophets are pointing towards Jesus. Everything in this book is pointing towards Jesus. And you read it and you say, well, why do I need to read the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament have to do with the story of salvation? The Old Testament has everything to do with it because the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers. It's all preparing our hearts for the power and the glory and the person of Jesus. So when you read about Moses delivering his people, Jesus is the greater Moses to deliver his people. When you read about Moses receiving the law, Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. When you read about Moses parting the Red Sea, that's Jesus parting our, our, our sins and delivering us from the bondage that we are in. Whenever Moses takes a staff with a snake wrapped around it, and anyone who looks upon that staff will be healed. Jesus comes and he hangs on a cross and anyone who looks upon him will be healed. The law points us towards Jesus. The prophets prepare us for the coming of Jesus, calling us into a place of repentance and to a place of holiness. And so where we can understand what happens on the great day of the Lord, the law and the prophets, they're pointing towards Jesus. Everything in your Bible is really only ultimately pointing towards Jesus. And you say, Byron, I thought we were talking about the transfiguration. I thought we were talking about the glory of Jesus. I thought we were talking about light bulb Jesus. Why are you telling me now that I need to read my Bible? Because if you want to see the glory of God, all you got to do is read the word of God. You know, some people, they want to see God's glory, but they don't want to read their Bibles. (laughs) 
If you want to see the glory of God, all you got to do is read the word of God because he's perfectly revealed himself to us through his word. This is not speculation. This is revelation. This is not words about God. This is the word of God. And if you want to see his glory, then you just read the word that he wrote. You say, well, how, how does that make any sense? Well, some 30 years later, Peter, he's actually a pastor, and he sits down, and he writes a letter to Christians who are in exile, and he, he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths that we made known to you about the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, I didn't make this stuff up that I didn't hallucinate this. I saw it with my own eyes. I am an eyewitness to the power and to the glory. For when he received honor and, what's the word? Glory from the Father. The voice came, this is to them by majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this being born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. And now, listen to what he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of, what's the word? Scripture, the Bible, the authoritative word of God comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's looking back 30 years later as he's pastoring the church in Rome, and Peter's saying, I was there. I was on the mountain. I saw the transfiguration. I saw Jesus and all of his glory. Moses was there. Elijah was there. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was mind-blowing. But you know what's even more crazy than that? We have a Bible now. He says it's the scriptures. You know, he says that there's going to be dark days and there's going to be painful days. He says there's going to be days that you wish the morning star would rise. You want to see the sunlight. There's going to be days where you're just praying and you're holding fast and you're persevering and you're believing. And it's just so hard for you to hold on to the hope of the glory that you have in Jesus Christ. Peter knows this because Peter is at the church in Rome where they're being murdered and executed, fed to lions. They're dying. And Peter says, one day you're going to behold Jesus in all of his glory, but right now, in the meantime, read your Bibles, because it's what's going to sustain you till you see him on the great day of the Lord. If you want to see the glory of God, you have it in your hand every morning you wake up. It's where you can just read his word, because his word shows us his glory. His glory is who he is and what he does. He says, if you want to see his glory, just read the scriptures because he's perfectly revealed himself to us through the word. And then there's Moses, and then there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. What do you think they're talking about? I mean, how many of you would love to be on the mountain that day? How many of you would love to see that? Mark doesn't really tell us what they're talking about, but luckily for us, Luke, the historian, he was there, and he says this, and behold, the two men were talking with them. That's Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory, and they were beginning to talk about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses says, Jesus, you're about to do it. You're about to go to the cross. Man, I only wrote about it, but it's going to happen. Everything I failed to do, you're going to accomplish. See, I was just a deliverer of some people. You're going to deliver all people? 
I just received the law. You're going to fulfill the law? Moses comes down from heaven and he begins to talk to Jesus about his crucifixion. And then Elijah shows up from heaven and he says, Jesus, you're about to make a way for people. And I wrote about it, but I'm going to see it now. Man, I dreamed about it, but I'm going to see it now. Did you know this? That you and me have something Moses and Elijah never had. We have the testimony of the resurrection of Christ. See, they only looked forward to it. But you and me, we can look back at it and we can have assurance for our faith because one day we will be able to see him face to face. We have something that even the saints of the Old Testament never had. We have the assurance of salvation today. And Moses and Elijah, they peer to Jesus And they're just talking with Jesus about his death. And they're talking to Jesus about his resurrection. There's Moses and there's Elijah and there's Jesus. And then there's Peter. Don't forget about Peter. How could we forget about Peter? Here's what happens in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Jesus, it's good for you that we are here. Moses, welcome. Don't forget about me, though. It's me. It's your boy, Peter. Hey, Elijah. That's really cool. Flaming chariots and stuff. Calling down fire from heaven. Woohoo! Yeah, I like that story. But hey, what about Peter? Look at me. He says, Jesus, it's a good thing for you that I'm here. You got to get the picture that Moses is like, Jesus, who invited this guy to the mountain? <laughs> Jesus is like, uh, yeah, he's with me. <laughs> that happened like eight chapters ago. He was out fishing, and I just called him, and, you know, I prayed for him a couple of times, and he just keeps showing up. So, you know what, let's just give, you know, it's, it's a long story. I'll tell you about it later. I, I, bet, I bet Elijah's like, is this, is this, this going to be the guy? Jesus is like, yeah, I know. He will change the world one day. But just give him a little time. We've got to be patient with him. He's going to do some amazing things. Pentecost is going to happen, I promise. But we're about, we're about a year away from that. Just give him some time. Give him some time. We laugh at Peter because, well, we are Peter. Every time we laugh at Peter, we're really just laughing at ourselves. Because how often in your life do you turn a holy moment and make it all about you? How many times in your life are you in the presence of God and the only thing you can think about is yourself? How many times are you in the presence of greatness and all you can think about is, what about me? That's Peter. We laugh at Peter because we're really laughing at ourselves. Peter says, Jesus, it's good for you that I'm here. Hey, let's go ahead and make some tents. You're like, really? That's all you're thinking about is you're going to go make some tents? Like, you're like, we're going to go camping. We're going to set up here. We're going to put some tents together. It's going to be incredible. There's Moses. We'll give you a tent. There's Elijah. Elijah will give you a tent. Jesus, your tent's in the middle. It's going to be a big tent, but it's still a tent. Come on, we can go make some tents. It's good for you that I'm here. And Peter, in a holy moment, all he can think about is himself. He wants to, he wants to pitch some tents. <laughs> And you're thinking, God, what in the world is Peter thinking? What in the world is Peter doing? The story is crazy. Peter gets up and he starts running around trying to make tents. I guess you could say the story was a little intense. Ah. 
Yeah. I laughed inside, so. (sighs) As we continue in the story, here's what happens. Because he did not know what to say, he was terrified. Peter has what I like to call foot and mouth disease. You know that person who anytime there's a moment of silence, they have to fill it with awkwardness? That's Peter. He has foot and mouth disease. You know, if you don't know anybody who has foot and mouth disease, it's because you're the one with foot and mouth disease. So we laugh at Peter because we are Peter. But if you think about it, and you remember all the way back to week one in the introduction of the Gospel of Mark, what we said is that Mark may be the author, but actually Peter was the source that Mark was the protege of Peter as he was the pastor in Rome. And towards the end of Peter's life, he begins to tell Mark all about Jesus, the things that he saw and who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And as Mark is sitting under the teaching and preaching of Peter, he writes down all of the gospel stories, which later becomes known as the gospel of Mark. And as Peter's telling him this story, Peter says, I was terrified and I just started talking about tents. I don't know what I was saying. It was a little embarrassing, which really just goes to show the spiritual maturity over Peter's lifetime, that in this moment, he was thinking about himself, but later on, as he reflects back on it, he's really just thinking about Jesus and how in the presence of Jesus, he didn't know what to say. It says he was terrified. And then verse seven, and a cloud overshadowed them. You say, well, what is the significance of the cloud? In the Old Testament, it's what's known as the Shekinah glory. It's a theological term for the manifest presence of God, that God would reveal himself to his people in a fire by night and a cloud by day. There's stories in the Old Testament where God would come down as a cloud and envelop the people, that his presence would be so thick and so tangible that he would be right there with the people, that his glory would indwell in tabernacles and that they would follow him as he would lead them through the wilderness and through the darkness and through the difficulties of life, God would show up and people could actually be in the presence of God. And here we see the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God, just like he did in the Old Testament, boom, on top of the mountain. So there's Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and they're in the presence of God, and Peter's running around talking. And then a voice came from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You almost get the sense that God's interrupting Peter. (laughs) Right? Last week, Peter's like, you're the Christ. And then Jesus is like, you're Satan. He gets rebuked by Jesus. And then here, Peter's like, we're going to build some tents. And he's running around like a crazy person talking about tents. And then God shows up and he says, this is my son, Peter. Knock it off. Listen to him. He interrupts Peter, and he says, this is my beloved son. These are the same words that we see at Jesus' baptism. As Jesus goes down into the water, and he comes back up, the spirit descends on him. The voice from the Father says, this is my son. And here again, we see, this is my son. This is a confirmation of the identity and the divinity of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, that he is the one with no beginning and no end. He has come on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost, that he is the only begotten of the Father, and that God is delighted in him. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as they were coming back down the mountain, 
Sorry, verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In just a moment, everything's gone. The cloud's gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. The, the voice from the Father are gone. The only thing left, no, no longer seeing Jesus in glory, his radiance, his light is gone. Everything's gone. And they're looking around trying to see what's going to happen next. They're looking around trying to see what they're going to do after this. They're looking around trying to hold on to a piece of his glory. But in the moment, the glory is gone. See, the glory was not just meant to last forever in this moment. The glory here was only for a moment. The glory was a future glimpse of what you and me are going to see for all of eternity. You know, sometimes we only catch a glimpse of his glory. Sometimes we only see it for just a moment. Sometimes he shows up and he does incredible, amazing, wonderful things, and we only catch just a glimpse. But what happens when the glimpse is gone? Well, as we see next, the story continues. They have to come down the mountain. What goes up must come down. And then we see this. He charged them not to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You say, can you imagine having to keep this to yourselves? Could you just, could you just think about having to see light bulb Jesus and then not tell anybody about him? That you saw Moses and Elijah. You saw the pre-incarnate, resurrected glory of Jesus, the Shekinah glory cloud, and then Jesus like, shh, don't tell anybody. You say, why would Jesus tell him this? He says, don't tell anyone until you see the Son of Man has risen from the dead. If you're with us in Mark, you know that there's a thing in Mark called the messianic secret. That over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus keeps saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Every time he would cast out a demon, he per- did not permit the demon to speak. When he you know, walked on the water, he said, don't tell anybody what you saw. Whenever he heals the deaf man, he says, don't go back to the village. And nine times in Mark's Gospel, he says, don't tell anybody. Think, why would Jesus tell them not to tell anyone about what they saw? Well, the answer is because they still didn't get it. He didn't want them going and sharing misinformation about the mission that Jesus had come. See, Peter, he still doesn't understand. You know, what we, make, we make fun of Peter with the tents, but do you know the real reason that Peter wanted to build the tents? The real reason that Peter wanted to build the tents isn't just because he loved camping, but he was familiar with the Old Testament, and he is familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, it talks about Moses and Elijah coming down, and when that happens, it's the day of glory. And he is looking forward to it, and he says, oh, this is the moment of glory. This is the day that the Messiah is going to be crowned as king, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pitch some tents. It's called the Festival of Booths that took place in the book of Exodus, that whenever God's glory would show up, then the people would move with the glory. They would move the tents and the tabernacles, and that's where the kingdom of God dwelt at. And here's what Peter's really thinking. Last week, I said that you were the Christ and the Messiah, and I told you that you're not going to go to the cross, and you're not going to die. And then he sees the glory show up in power, and he says, Jesus, there is no cross waiting for you, because we can set up that kingdom right here, that we can just do this kingdom business right here on top of this mountain. You can do the light bulb thing, and then everybody's going to come and follow you. And if they don't believe you, we got Moses and Elijah here. He's saying, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. We could reinstate the kingdom of God right here in this moment. You don't have to get off the mountain. Everybody's going to come here and see you. The real reason that Peter wanted to pitch the tents is because he did not want Jesus to go to the cross. 
See, Peter, after two and a half years, he still doesn't understand who Jesus is. That's why Jesus looks at him and says, the son of man will rise from the dead. In the meantime, keep your mouth shut. He's not being mean, but he's trying to protect Peter's heart because Peter still doesn't understand. See, you know, sometimes we see his glory, but we still don't understand it. You know, sometimes we come to Jesus and we witness him, but we still don't really understand him. That in our life, as we walk with Jesus, sometimes we catch a glimpse, but it's not the way that it's always going to be. And that we're going to be growing and we're going to be maturing and we're going to be following after him day by day, week by week, year by year. And right now it may not make a lot of sense, but one day it will. And Peter says, okay, I'll keep this matter to myself. And they go on and they begin questioning what the rising of the dead might mean. See, they still don't understand. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they have a lot of questions now. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. We're eight chapters into the gospel of Mark, 35 sermons into this series. We're uh, two years into our study in the simple gospel. And after all of this time, the disciples, they still don't see everything. They've seen some things, but they still don't see everything. They've seen him preach and teach and heal. They've seen him cast out demons, perform miracles. They've seen the spirit of God at work on him. They've seen God show up in mighty ways and signs and wonders, listening to parables, but they still don't actually understand. And in this moment, here's what we see with the disciples is that they have said the word glory, but they still don't understand his glory. Many of us, we find ourselves in that same place, that we know the words, but we don't actually know him in the fullness of his glory, that we can sing the songs, but we don't really know him in the fullness of his glory. We might have caught it for a glimpse, but sometimes the glimpse is gone, and we're left here, and we're wondering, and waiting, and watching, and praying, and saying, Jesus, where is your glory at? Because just like the disciples, they've seen it, but then it's gone. How many of you feel that way in your life? Like you've seen him do some great things, but you're in a season where the glory is gone, where you've seen him move in some mighty ways, but right now you're just not seeing his glory at work in your life. How many of you have ever found yourself in a place where you just don't understand and you don't know and you're saying things and you have no clue what you're talking about and you're just holding on, waiting and hoping to that moment you see his glory again? Well, if that's you, I want to pull out a couple of points of application, and I want to give you five reasons that we don't see his glory. We want to see his glory, but there's sometimes that we, we don't. So I'm going to give you five reasons that we don't see his glory and five ways to help you be able to see his glory. The first reason that we don't see his glory is this. It's because we want power, and he wants us to pray. It starts off by Jesus saying, you will see my power. Hey, guys, we love the Bible verses all about power. We love those verses. Signs, healings, miracles, open doors, opportunities, blessings from heaven. We love the verses about power, especially when our backs are up against the wall, when we're going through difficulty, when we're struggling, when we're straining, when we're holding on to hope. We just love the verses all about power. But you know what I've discovered is that without prayer, there is no power in your life. 
And then a lot of people, they want power, but they don't want to take the time to pray. If you don't pray, you're not going to see his power. People want to see his power, but they don't have a habit of prayer in their life. You know, the power only comes after the prayer. We see this as a pattern in the Bible. Jesus says, you're going to see my power, and then what do they do? Six days in prayer. The more concentrated your prayers are, the more power you're going to see in your life. It's just how it works. You know, many of us, we, we, we want to see God do something amazing. We want to see God move in incredible ways. We want that breakthrough. We want that power. We want to see him in his glory. If so, we got to make time for prayer. You know, so many of us, we just think, okay, well, then, then I'm going to just keep going, and then God's going to do something, and then it's going to be amazing, but I don't need to humble myself and get down before him and actually pray. Jesus, being God, prayed. Think about it. He is God in the flesh, and he still has to get alone and pray. If Jesus, being God, needed to pray, how much more do you need to pray? If we want to see the power of God, we need to be a people of prayer. You know, we're in a season of prayer right here as a church. We're in 40 days of redemption where we're praying every single morning for God to move in our church. And you know what? We've seen God move in some powerful ways, but so far in the three years of our church, we've never really established a culture of prayer here. And we've seen God grow us that we're, you know, last week we had almost record attendance. We have so many kids in our children's ministry that they're just falling out of the nursery. We got like 17 you know, babies who are fixing to be born in the next month. I mean, we're just growing. We're, 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 everything's working together. Our teams are being raised up. We're at three services, and now they're equally attended, and we're praying that God's going to open doors for us to move, or we're going to have to add a fourth service. We need more pastors and leaders. I mean, we're in this amazing season of a church where God is moving in incredible ways. And you know one way for us to miss out on what God wants to do is for us to expect his power without prayer. Maybe you're in a season in your life where you're just not seeing God's power. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your finances are struggling. Maybe you're struggling with your kids. Maybe there's something at work that's, that's, that's not going well, and you're wondering, God, when are you going to show up? God, when are you going to move? Can I ask you what your prayer life is like? If your marriage is struggling, can I ask you how often do you pray for your spouse? If, you're, if your finances are struggling, if your job opportunities are struggling, if you're in doubt and you're in despair, can I ask you, what does your prayer life look like? There is a direct correlation between the power of God and the prayers that you pray. If we want to see God move, if we want to see him in his glory, it only comes when we become a people of prayer. The next thing we see is this, is that we want to work and he wants us to worship. The glory shows up, and what's the first thing Peter does? He's like, let's build some tents. Let's get to work. Come on, James, John, come on. We got we to gotta do this. There's only three of us, and then there, there's all these tents. We got to build some tents. Come on, guys. We got to build some tents. Chop, 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 chop. Let's build some tents. And you know what? He missed his moment of glory. Do you know why? Because he was so busy working, he didn't have time to worship the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. And yes, work is good and service is good and loving others is good. And thank you for our serve team for making all of this possible. But do you know the reason that we work and the reason that we serve and the reason we love and bless others is so that way we can worship? 
And sometimes when you're in the presence of God, then all we think about is what we have to do next and the busyness that comes next and what comes after this and what we can do for God. And sometimes we get so busy thinking about what we do, we miss out on who he is. When you're in the presence of God, just worship. Just enjoy him. Just spend time with him. That you are in the presence of God. Just fall down and just worship him. And this is incredible significance for our church. Because many of you, you do serve. About 50% of our church, they're, they're serving. Many of you are working in ministries outside of the church. Many of you are raising kids, which is a great gospel work. Many of you are sharing your faith at work, inviting all of your friends. But can I just say this, that if you only come to church on the weeks you serve, you just don't understand his glory. If you only come to church and you serve one, but you don't show up for the worship service, then you're not worshiping him. You're, you're not missing, you're missing out on his glory. Because you're so busy about work and it's all about what you do and you're missing out on who he is and just enjoying him. You know, the only person who does anything in this text during the transfiguration is Peter. And he misses out on his moment because he's so busy worshiping. He's beholding the fullness of the glory of Jesus and all he can think about is pitching tents. You know, that's the same thing we do today. During worship, what are you thinking about? If you want to see his glory, you got to worship him. You know, one of the theological reasons behind the transfiguration is actually it's a glimpse in eternity future that this is the resurrected Jesus at the right hand of the Father in flaming eyes and white dazzling lightning clothes. I mean, this is the future Jesus. And you know what happens when we get to heaven? You know what you're going to be doing when you get to heaven? That you will be beholding him in all of his glory and you will bow down before him and you will spend eternity worshiping him. Today is practice for eternity. When you walk through these doors, you know it's practice for eternity. When we gather as a church and we sing worship to him, we are practicing for all of eternity that what you do today matters eternally tomorrow, that every time we're gathered as a congregation, we're just like what we see in the book of Revelation where every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, all people groups will be singing glory, glory, holy, holy, majesty, the power of God on display. When you worship, do you worship like you will in heaven? If not, you're going to miss his glory. Which leads us to the next point is this, is that we want to talk, and he wants us to listen. Peter, he just begins talking. He's like, well, I can do this, and I can do this, and we can do this, and hey, it's good for you that I'm here, and he turns a holy moment, and he makes it all about himself. We laugh at Peter because we're really laughing at ourselves. How often when you're in the presence of God, do you only talk about you? But just think about it. You ask people, what is your prayer life like? And most people would say, well, you know, I go to God and I, I tell him my needs. And so I'll go up to him and I say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for forgiving me my sins. I, I really like that. That's great. Jesus, you're God. Holy, holy, Lord, Lord, glory, 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 glory. Okay. Now, um, I want to pray for my wife. You know, if she would um, give me a foot rub, that would be really nice. And I want to pray for my husband because he hasn't done the dishes in like a week. Could you, Lord, Holy Spirit, empower him to clean the house? And I'm going to pray for my kids. And, you know, they've been kind of crazy. It took us 30 minutes 
minutes to brush her teeth last night, and I would really like some help with that, and God, I don't really like my job. No, my job's not bad, but I just don't like Steve, who works in accounting. God, could you just fire Steve? No, wait, could you bless him with a new job, another job, and another division? If you want to move him across the country, that'd be really nice. I'm supposed to pray for my enemies, and so, Lord, we just go through the big long list. The AC in my car is out, and could you just miraculously do that? I mean, I want to pray for your power again, but, you know, if not, could you just get somebody in the church to fix it for me? Because it's getting really, you know, hot outside, and God, I just ran out of things to say. Okay, Lord Jesus, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And then we're gone. And you know, so often in the presence of God, all we do is talk. But you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to listen to him. This is why he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, it's okay for you to go to God and give him your needs. God wants to know what's on your heart, but do you want to know what's on God's heart? Do you want to know what God is saying to you, what God is speaking to you? Just think about it. Prayer is relationship. And if you had somebody who talked to you the way you talk to God, how would your relationship with him look? There's just a beauty about spending time in his presence. There's a beauty in just sitting with him in silence. There's a philosopher who says that the, the problem in every single man is that they do not have the ability to sit alone in silence. There's a spiritual discipline known as silence and solitude. Sometimes when you're in the presence of God, the best thing you can do is nothing at all and just let him minister to you. Let him speak over you. Let him pour his love over you. Let him just be with you. Let his glory be with you. And don't always feel like you have to fill the air with awkwardness. Sometimes it's the best thing for you just to sit alone in silence. Are you comfortable in the presence of God? One of the reasons we don't see his glory is because we're so busy talking when what he really wants us to do is listen to him. Which leads us to the next one is this, is we want to stay, he wants us to go. Peter's like, let's pitch some tents. This is going to be great. This is going to be amazing. We can take this moment and we can turn it into a museum. And then everybody in the world, they can come and they can see you and your glory is going to shine. And we can just, we can, we can stay here. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to resurrect. You don't have to do anything. You can just stay right here and we can take this holy moment and we can make it into a museum. Jesus says, no, we can't stay, we gotta go because this moment is not meant to be a museum. Reason I came was for a movement. So often, God shows up in his glory and we wanna institutionalize it. We want to say, this is the way God moved, and so this is the way that God always moves. And so when I was a kid, I got baptized with the Holy Spirit with the initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues, and so everybody must speak in tongues if they want to really see the glory. When I was a kid, I went to Rural Rangers, and so everybody's got to go to Rural Rangers. When I went to kid, I was Baptist, and so that's just the way it's supposed to be. And we become so institutionalized to the way God moved in the past that we no longer think about what he wants to do in the future. It's where we just think, well, this is how he moved in my life. Well, what he does for you doesn't mean he's going to do it for everyone. He wants to reveal himself in different ways to different people. And do not put God in a box and institutionalize his glory. The goal was not to build a museum. Jesus says the church is to be a movement. 
What do you think would have happened if Peter never came down from the mountain? There would be no cross. There would be no resurrection. There would be no Pentecost. There would be no spirit-indwelled believers. You and me, we would still be in our sins, and Redemption Church would never exist. What happens on the mountain is not meant to stay on the mountain. It's meant to go and to be a movement that changes the world forever. And so many Christians, they want to stay on the mountain. Jesus says, you can't stay on the mountain. What I do in you, I want to do through you for my glory and for the good of others. There's a danger when we want to institutionalize the move of God. I've seen it in churches. There's one church that I love where God moved in powerful ways 20 years ago, and now the people can't let go of it, and they're struggling today because they've institutionalized the move of God. We do the same thing here at our church. People come to our church and they say, man, Byron, it's amazing to see the church grow. It's so incredible. I mean, you know, 40 baptisms this year is pretty fantastic, and I love meeting all the new people, but, you know, there's just something. I just miss the old redemption. Like, really, what redemption do you miss? Do you miss it when it was 10 people in Bo's apartment? Do you miss the redemption where we had no building and we were nomadic and only could meet once a month and we met in coffee shops? Do you miss the gig redemption? Do you miss the Dixie redemption? Do you miss the setup and the teardown? Do you miss that? Do you miss that? Probably not. Do you miss that? What do you miss? Do you miss whenever we're building this out six months, asking for offerings every single week, doing work days? Do you miss that redemption? What redemption do you miss? And here's what I've discovered is inevitably the redemption that people miss is the redemption that they first came in because it ministered to them in powerful ways. But if we only did what we always did, we will not see what God is doing today. Jesus wants to take us from glory to glory. Don't make it a museum. Instead, take what he's done in your life and turn it into a movement so that way you can bless other people. Which leads us to the last thing, is that we want the facts. He wants us to follow him. They come down the mountain and they have all sorts of questions. They're like, okay, well, what about Moses? And what about Elijah? And we know about the prophecies. And okay, well, how does this connect over here? And what do you mean you must die? I can't ask you that. And how's this resurrection of the dead going to happen? We've never heard of that before. You're not the Messiah we expected. Nothing really just seems to make sense. And for the disciples, they wanted the facts. And Jesus says, even if I explained it to you, you still would not understand. So instead, just trust me, just be with me, and just follow me. And one day you're going to see it. This is one of the craziest Bible verses probably in all of Scripture. It's the most difficult one that I've had to explain. In fact, if I were to preach this sermon the way that I've studied and prepared, it would take three hours. Okay, look at all of the Bible verses that are also referenced in here. I'm going to throw that up on the screen. These are all of the verses that are referenced in this text. Look at that. Plus 72 other references. If I explained it to you, you still wouldn't understand. Because you know what? I still don't understand. And that's the way life with Jesus is sometimes. Sometimes there's just things on this side of heaven we won't understand. Like how could he shine in eternity past and eternity future in the exact same moment? I don't know. How is his hair like wool? How is his eyes like fire? How does he look like dazzling white lightning? I don't know. How does an infinite God become finite in his human form? I don't know. And you know what? There's a mystery about the glory of God that you just have to be okay with. There's some things on this side of heaven you're just not going to understand. But in the meantime, can you do me a favor and don't just say the word glory? Pray that he would show you his glory. You see, for us, we don't want to be a church that just says glory. We want to be a church that sees his glory. 
See, we don't want to be a church that just sings about his glory. We want to be a church that beholds his glory, that savors his glory, that experiences his glory, because when we see him in all of his glory, he will be transfigured and we will be transformed. Only through the power of his glory. Christians say a lot of things, but let us not just be people who say the word glory. Oh God, please, let us be a people who see it. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh!